in the past, sex has been equated with vaginal sex. But um, people, are, people are broader now in their repertoire. There's greater diversity in the range of practices. The National Surveys of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles is a deep look into the sex life of us Brits. And it's been running now for 30 years, giving us some longitudinal data about ways in which those sex lives have changed. The latest paper to be published, based on that data, looks at the frequency of sex, how often different groups are having sex on a weekly basis. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. And to talk about that paper, and about Natsal in general, I'm joined in the studio by Kay Wellings, Professor of Sexual and Reproductive Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Kay, thanks so much for taking some time to talk to us. Thank you for inviting me. Now, this is um, it's a very interesting study, I'm sure. By the time this comes out, there'll have been a lot of media attention. Um, people are fascinated by sex and the frequency at which um, people have sex. And we'll get onto that in a second. But I just wanted for you to give us a little background on that cell. What is it? Where did the idea of, of starting this, this countrywide survey come up? Well, Natsal was really uh, born out of the need for data in the context of the HIV epidemic, uh, which emerged in the 1980s. And um, it it was not surprising that a couple of teams, uh, mine included, uh, had the idea that this this should be carried out, that we needed to know. The press were constantly on to us. Um, The the, uh, doctors, epidemiologists wanted to know what proportion of people fitted into particular groups how many men had how many men who have sex with men are there what proportion of the population have used commercial sex workers what proportion actually work as sex workers what proportion start sex below a certain age all of these questions we didn't have answers to and i got together with uh, a colleague at what has become natsen to develop a study and another team at U- the team at ucl were also working on this and we were persuaded by the funding agencies to join forces and that's how it began it's- a fascinating beginning, and it sounds like this is an incredibly rich data source. You you ask lots of questions. What kind of data are you kind of collecting generally? Uh, it, it's become richer over time, and uh, I think it's become richer in the context of changes in the definition of sexual health, whereas we once might have been interested in uh, HIV, uh, perhaps unintended pregnancy. Uh, we've built up the study around the whole area of sexual behaviour, to include sexual violence, uh, to include sexual function, and to include sex education. Really, we've worked with the WHO over time to create a much broader concept of sexual health. So all of those things are now in the mix. And and NATSAL, the National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles, is a major source of data and many other countries are slightly envious of it, and many other countries have um, set up their own nuts. Mm. So the UK version of it, particularly, has been going for, for 30 years. Um, there's a lot of, of change over over that period, and that's partly what you're looking at in this study. Um, 
So what you've done is look at uh, factors associated with changes in the frequency of sex uh, in Britain. Could you just sort of go through, uh, take us through the data? What did you? What yes. Did you um, well, we 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 really we had a sentence in the uh, initial output from the survey, which was in 2013 in the Lancet. Just one sentence, which um, summarised. Uh, a decline in frequency. And then we've been involved at the LSHTM on uh, a quite a big global study of sexual behaviour. It came out in the Lancet in the mid-2000, the first decade of, of this century, and we're doing it again now. But what's become very interesting is that different countries are seeing declines, and they're seeing declines in sexual frequency in different populations. So in Japan, it's among young people. In Finland, uh, middle-aged men are the only group amongst whom there's been an increase in sexual frequency. All others have seen a decline. How does that work? Uh, well, <laughs> I have to ask a man called Osmo Contulo. Um, in the States, they've seen a decline in actually becoming sexually active, whereas we've seen a decline in sexual frequency among the sexually active. So it's not a question in this country of being increasing people being celibate. It's a question of an increase, a decrease in the frequency among those who are sexually active. And you said there are specific groups um, who you're seeing that decrease in. Which are those groups? Who are they? We're seeing um, a decline amongst those in midlife who are married and cohabiting. And I think this is very, a very interesting group in terms of an explanation because what we're doing with these data when we're saying asking the why question is guessing. Um, until we have longitudinal data on uh, qualitative data, which we haven't, we are really conjecturing what the causes might be. And they're likely to be many, not single explanations. But the midlife group are interesting because this is the group that people have been describing as uh, the U-bend generation. And by that they mean a group under quite a bit of pressure, facing quite considerable challenges, uh, which stem from changes in society. So they're having children later, so they've got childcare issues, they've got, they're often both working, they may have parents who are getting elderly, and then they've got leisure to fit in somewhere along there. And so this is, they're juggling those things. And they, it's called the U-bend or the sandwich generation, U-bend being the dip that people have found between happiness in youth, uh, a slight dip in midlife, and then happiness, satisfaction with life, rises again at 60 apparently. So this group, this mid, these midlifers are, are pressurised. And when we did some qualitative work amongst um, midlife women, and we were expecting all sorts of issues to come up. These were midlife women who'd reported n not being entirely satisfied with their sex lives. The most frequent theme that came up was exhaustion. Uh, the women went to bed, they said, to go to sleep. They were exhausted. So I think this is a group that is facing um, considerable pressure. Uh, it, it's also a group, obviously, uh, there's obviously the whole social media, the, the issue around being in the digital age, being able to go home at night, not necessarily sit down with your partner and have a good chat, but you can shop, you can book your holidays, you can do this, you can do that, you can even go on working. So 
you know, as I said, the, there are multiple factors here. Even more distractions. Even more distractions, sure. Mm. No, we said that the um, the survey's been running for 30 years, but the, uh, the buckets in which you're reporting are, are fairly broad, so we've only got three points of data in that time. Um, so you've said you, you're seeing this trend and this, this drop of frequency of sex amongst uh, this sort of middle-aged married population. How do we know that's an actual trend as opposed to just uh, uh, an aberration and it'll regress to the mean next Okay. Um, well, uh, you're quite right. We, it isn't a trend. It's a change. It's a change between two time points and it won't become a trend until it's a trend a change between three time points. Uh, but I think two things. First of all, we did see um, a, a decline in the medians between one and two, which we, we'd calculated at the time slightly differently. So it's not showing up so much in this paper. And we didn't really want, we wanted this paper to be absolutely accurate about what was going on. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is that other surveys do have more than one time point. Uh, or rather more than two time points. So they are seeing trends. So, uh, of course, it might reverse, but I'd be a little bit surprised if it was going to reverse by the next NATSAL results, by the time they come out. Um, and then the other thing that happens over 30 years is, and especially the last 30 years that we've had, there's been a lot of change in, in society and people's sort of attitudes to sex since 1990 when this, this first started. Um, and I just wonder, you know, this is a self-reported study. Do we know that this isn't to do with people feeling more comfortable about or sharing that kind of intimate detail about their life? Absolutely. Um, you know, you've put your finger on a very important point. You have to add that to the pot with the explanations in uh, because the way that we the way that we think society feels about sex and what we're doing will influence reporting. Um, and it's it's a major uh, aim of studies like ours to try to cut that down to the minimum by using computer-assisted technology, by assuring people that this isn't going to come out on page one of the tabloid directly. It might do so, but this is for very... We're conducting it for very good public health reasons, that the data will be useful and so on. But even so, you're quite right, and social attitudes have changed. I think one thing that's changed over time... Uh, we had the so-called sexual revolution, though many people doubt its existence. But we had a period of liberalising reform in the 1960s. And certainly we had a period during which um, it became much more acceptable to be reporting um, having sex if you were single, for example. Those sorts of things changed. At the same time, I think... There was a, a tendency once the floodgates were opened that you know you could have sex. Uh, it was almost as if you should have sex, so there became a new imperative. You know, the the imperative not to have sex changed into almost an orthodoxy that you should have sex as much as possible and as many ways as possible, and so on. Um, I think we might be settling down in that respect, um, and I think you know people are thinking, "What was the fuss about? You know, this is sex." You know, it's like eating. It's like anything else we do. It's, if we do it well, it's lovely. You know, if we have terrible food, it's awful. And I think we've just got more sensible about it, more 
and more normal if you like. I think that has two effects on reporting. One is that it may be that people don't feel they need to report having sex every night last week if they didn't. Um, they don't have to sort of they don't perform have to boast. for the survey. They yeah. don't have to perform for the survey. The other thing I think that's happened is with greater equality between men and women, it may be that uh, we know that men have larger appetites for sex generally, and I say generally, um, there's certainly evidence uh, that they have easier to um, to rouse and so more likely to be the, the ones, the, the partner who's wanting sex more regularly. And it may be that women just feel now that they have the right to uh, to say not tonight, <laughs> I'm tired, rather than... Uh, you know, the old expression was lie back and think of England. Uh, women, you know, I think have been told if they, you know, they can have good sex and they have good sex when they want to and when it's going to be good sex. They don't have to just please their partner. So you're talking here about numbers, but you're not talking about the kind of quality of sex, whether it's good sex or not, that someone's having. Is that data that you have collected or is that not part of it? It's not only data we've collected, it's data we've reported on. We actually created a measure of sexual function for the third NATSAL and we created a measure of sexual function that included the what we call the am I bothered factor. <laughs> it included the does it matter to me? Uh-huh. And it also included uh, a relationship factor. So we, it wasn't just to do with, um, you know, whether sex was pleasing and whether and what your sort of competent you know physiological competence was to have sex it was uh, about is it okay for you what what sex you're having and is it okay for your partner um but we have reported those extensively and we do say in this paper that uh in the paper that we're talking about here that uh quality is important in the paper we mentioned that having sex once a week there are other papers, not ours, that show that having sex once a week is just as good as having sex seven times a week. And we've also mentioned that um, it could be, we don't perhaps don't know quite enough about it, that the intimacy created by cuddling and being close also has um, a beneficial effect, if not totally equal to at least uh, meeting the equivalence of having sex. Yeah, that's interesting. And what we've done so far in this conversation is sort of lumped this together as sex. But within your data set, you were looking at things like oral sex, anal sex, vaginal sex. Um, I just wonder, do you see any difference in trends between those kind of, uh, you know, is all sex declining or is it specific kinds of sex? Yes, uh, that's that's a very good point because... Um, you know, we shouldn't just look at the frequency of sex, and we don't. One of the reviewers said, this is just about frequency. It's not about, you know, the practices. But you can only put so much in um, the BMJ word count, and we have reported those other things. We produced a paper on the data from young people, um, and that was, I think it was 2017. Uh, and that paper showed an increase in the range of practices that young people engaged in over time. So an increasing proportion between the three studies who took, who uh, had experienced anal, oral sex, uh, and roughly the same proportion over time who had experienced vaginal sex. Um, and that's probably to do with, um, you know, the, the stigma attached to perhaps just 
not uh, it used to be thought that, that was just normal sex having it the normal way in fact when we first carried out the study when we we're looking at the pilot when we piloted it and asked questions we asked people what they understood by particular terms and we said what does that mean pointing to vaginal sex and they said well that's just ordinary sex you could have just said sex there couldn't you um and it gave us the strong clue that you know in the past sex has been equated with vaginal sex but um, people are people are broader now in their repertoire there's greater diversity in the range of practices yeah I mean that's interesting and that was a, a question I was going to ask is um, you know looking at this data and this this sort of little drop-off made me think you know what's feeling that and so I had a quick look at things like um, the number of people in the country, a proportion of people who have broadband. And in that period, you know, obviously before 2000, it was very, very few people. And even within your your data set there from 2000 to uh, 2012, it's um, that's massively gone up. So um, I was just wondering, do you think things like people's porn habits maybe will have uh, affected this and is that something that you've you've questioned or uh, you've it's an o- it's an obvious thought um and it's it's you know it's, it's it's something that we did consider unfortunately we didn't measure pornography in the last nut cell that probably sounds remiss but you know when we started doing the questionnaire in 2007 believe it or not it wasn't such a big issue uh, we did ask about whether people learned about sex from the internet, but of course it's become a big issue, and it is a, you know, the ne- in the next NatSal it is me- it is going to be measured. But when we look at other surveys around the world who have measured it, what's interesting is that those who consume more pornography, who use it more, have more partnered sex. So it's not as if it's taking the place of partnered sex, you know, sex with mm-hmm. your partner. Um, it's more as if those who've got, you know, big sexual appetite or are more sexually adventurous um, are going to be more interested in sex in a number of ways. Uh, and I think that's very interesting that it's not, there's no evidence that it's actually a substitute as yet. Mm. And as you say, your your data hasn't captured that yet. And I suppose it will give us the, the broad numbers on that, but it won't go into the, the specifics, you know, asking about people's sexual appetite. and, and Well, of course, of- yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but next time um, uh, it will be possible to look at consumption of pornography by a number of characteristics of people's sex lives. For example, sexual practices. For example, experience of non-consensual sex. For example, frequency. So that will be, although surveys aren't great at um, sorting out explanations for things, you can start analysing the data. So you look at the associations uh, between different things and then rely on other data, qualitative work, for example, to tease out those associations. Given the context of what's happening in the UK and for people abroad, um, the government has just passed legislation to sort of try and limit people's access um, to pornography. Uh, it will be interesting to have uh, data actually giving some, some absolute numbers to people's habits there. I completely agree, yeah. I completely agree. Um, whether you, you know, When you have a survey the size of NatSal, it's going to take up quite a small part of the overall questionnaire. So it will. I think society will be reliant on the funders' funding uh, you know amplified studies 
on pornography to really get the hang of it. Uh, there are good studies in Denmark. Uh, there's a study going on in Australia at the moment, but um, the UK, we haven't really got good data here. Mm. Now, everything we've been talking about here, you know, the U-band generation with those sort of societal pressures on um, maybe use of pornography, things like that, um, they're, they're social factors. And you've reported this in the BMJ, which is a, a medical journal. So the question that brings up in, in my mind is, well, A, is there a medical aspect to this? Or, or B, are we in danger of kind of medicalizing people's you know, reduction in in the amount of sex that they're they're having if if we look at it that way. That's a very interesting question. I think it depends on your definition of medicine and public health. And increasingly, public health and medicine have been massive. There were many articles a little while ago in the BMJ on happiness, for example. So um, the fact that we are seeing medicine the remit of medicine is much broader and not just about the physiological, um, then I think it does belong in the BMJ. Um, and not simply because it's these are social factors, but because medicine has to take account of society. Because the way society changes... Uh, changes the way people behave and not just generally but in terms of their health behaviours I think medicine can't avoid the social No, absolutely I think people will inevitably take to their general practitioner anxieties that they have about their sex lives in whatever context they're, they're relevant and one important service that the survey uh, performs for public health is to dispel myths and to create reference ranges if you like normal though normals are not a good word to use in terms of sexual behavior but reference ranges for the for the different behaviors that are relevant and it, it is the case data have shown that um People generally think that other people have more sex than they do. And that can be worrying. Uh, we found in this survey that uh, more than half were dissatisfied with the amount of sex they were having. More than half said they prefer to have sex more often. Now there, it could be possible that they're, pref they're comparing themselves with what they believe to be what everybody else is doing. And if it is the case, then doctors can perform a really good, a really valuable function in saying, you know, you think this, but actually, uh, and they go away feeling reassured, I think. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, a fascinating point, because um, as you were saying before, we started recording sex is hidden. It's, it's very yes, easy that's to very important. Not, not really understand what's going on with people around you and, and, you know, what they're actually... Yes, I think that's an important added. We need to add that fact when we observe that people think more, other people have more sex. I mean, when we think about... We can see what people are eating. Uh, we're beginning less to see what people are doing when they're smoking because it's become more secret as the norms around it have changed. Uh, but generally, eating, drinking, we can see at least some of their activity. But sex takes place for the most part in private and we are not privy to, we do not witness other people's sex lives. Uh, we're dependent on reports in perhaps not always reliable uh, media outlets and that may give us a very different idea. You've been listening to Kay Wellings talk about the paper. 
Changes in and factors associated with frequency of sex in Britain. Evidence from three national surveys of sexual attitudes and lifestyles. That paper is now available open access on bmj.com and I'll add links in the podcast text for you. That's it for this podcast, but we'll be back very soon asking why, if gambling seen as a public health issue, isn't it tackled in that way? Subscribe if you haven't done so. We're available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, including now, finally, Spotify. Whilst you're there, also rate or review us. It'd be great if you could do that. It really helps us and it helps other people find us too. Until next time, I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. Thanks for listening.